0: the Dublin Festival of History podcast, brought to you by Dublin City Council. In this episode from the 2019 Dublin Festival of History, historians Anne Dolan, John Dorney and Dermot Farreter discuss Ireland's War of Independence, chaired by journalist and author Rowan McGreevy. It was recorded at Printworks Dublin Castle on the 18th of October 2019 and we join the conversation with Rowan McGreevy asking about perceptions of the conflict
1: you think that our, our perception of the War of Independence has been coloured by perhaps the stories of Dan Breen, um, Tom Barry and so on, who have written these very colourful memoirs and that that's, that's what has framed it? As far as work yeah, as
0: well. I mean, Dan Breen's memoir comes out really, really early. I think it's 1924, it comes out, it's very popular with the public. It sets a kind of tone. I mean, I think it's been described in, in one book recently that it was almost written like a Wild West tale. And there, it does, it, it rattles along. It's a, it's a really good read in many respects, but... You're absolutely right it sets a very particular tone I think for many of the people involved in the war of independence there is this struggle between the kind of public narrative of the war of independence that many people felt they had to live up to as the years went by they had to keep telling the story maybe the same way in public which maybe frames a very particular public impression of it and it makes it sort of a romantic story in 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 some ways which which maybe you know is, is also part of of the role it plays in the in I suppose the the part it plays in, in in the way in which it becomes, I suppose, part of the foundation myth of the state. So it almost has to have a romantic air to it. And that, I think, again, makes it problematic for us, particularly when we encounter records that that really challenges us in, in, in very, very different ways.
1: And we'll talk about that later on. Mm-hmm. Jim, as I mentioned at the start there every school kid in Ireland learns that the War of Independence started at solo head bag. But the historian Michael Hopkinson in his book, The Irish War of Independence, said that the extremely limited and episodic nature of the hostilities during the rest of 1919 scarcely merits the term war. And Richard Mulcahy, who was the Father uh, Richard Mulcahy said that really the War of Independence only began in 1920, in in early 1920 with the burning of the barracks. What do you think, uh, when would you say it started?
2: I do think it starts in 1919. Um, If you're trying to measure the body count, you could say 1919 is a very quiet year, Uh, perhaps less than 60 people killed over the course of the year. Does that merit the description war? Uh, Certainly not when you uh, place it in a wider context, given the other theatres of war that are relevant uh, in in 1919 and 1920. Uh, But that's not the point. The point is things changed in 1919. Things changed at the end of 1918. Um, If you consider the different impulses at work in relation to the um, separatist mindset, Eight, 1918 is a crucial year, and the end of 1918 obviously witnesses that seminal general election, an expanded electorate, much more buy in and engagement uh, by uh, an expanded electorate. And what did Sinn Féin's manifesto say? That they would use any and every available means to render impotent the power of Britain to hold Ireland in subjection. Now, You could argue that that there was a vagueness to that. It wasn't necessarily uh, about people mandating uh, a war of independence, but it was certainly uh, very defiant. Um, It was uh, clearly centered around the idea of a crusade, an independence crusade. What happened in Solahad Beg in Tipperary in January 1919 in parallel with this important um, political set piece message to the free nations of the world, the declaration uh, of independence, the unveiling of the democratic program. What happened in parallel with that uh, was not something that was authorized, Uh, that was about temporary volunteers who were actually quite skeptical about politics, doing their own thing, they were impatient, they wanted the beginning uh, of, of something new, but what they did and the events that it set in train does mean that we can, I think with confidence, assert that 1919 was the beginning of the War of Independence. But there are many different wars going on. I mean, the primary impulse is is political. I think Anne's right about that. Um, And there's a very strong focus on the idea of communicating to an outside world uh, the relevance of the Irish claim to self-determination. And there's a wider international uh, context for that. But there are many different conflicts that develop. There's a political one. There's a military one. There's a propaganda one. There's a psychological one. Um, And what that means to different people depends not just on where they are, as Anne said, it also depends on their particular circumstances, uh, their social, economic, cultural circumstances. Um, So, you know, all of that is swirling around in 1919. It doesn't reach the military extremities um, during that year. Uh, The targeting of of the Royal Irish Constabulary brings that war onto a new plane, uh, even though they were attacked, obviously, in 1919, the level uh, of the conflict... Um, is much greater in 1920 but I would still see 1919 as the beginnings of this
1: Okay, John um, the, the conflict was, uh, it was more intense in, in some counties and areas than others, can you tell us why?
3: Yeah, and um, in classic fashion, I'd like to answer another question first. Huh? <laughs> now, so just to back up what, what Anna and Dermot have been saying, so we, people recently have been moving away from the term War of Independence, which is a very military term, and towards the term the Irish Revolution, because in some ways the politics is more important. And there's pe- a lot of people who contributed to Irish independence who never held a gun. For example, people who manned the Dáil Courts, which were set up starting in 1918, officially mandated in 1920, but to replace the British court system. Many of them were interned, they suffered for it, That's not part of the military story, but it is an important part of the story. Similarly, things that are probably almost totally forgotten today is general strikes, for example. There's three general strikes called in the period by the trade union movement. You know, the first one is against conscription. Second one is for release of prisoners. The third one is to try to prevent the civil war, actually. But those are also important facets. Now, to answer your question, though, there is a war. There is military aspect, the violence, the political violence is important, and it is kind of localized. So for example, over 500 people are killed in County Cork, and about nine are killed in County Wicklow. So it's, it's very different depending on what part of the country you're in. Now, two things to say about that. It's concentrated in Munster, where martial law is declared, especially County Cork. There's a lot of violence in Dublin City, there's a lot of violence almost of a different kind in of Belfast, where there's a sectarian conflict that breaks out in mid-1920. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that those were the areas that burned brightest for the Republic, you know, in, in the language of the day. For example, the Doll Courts I mentioned are first set up in County Calvin, or some of the first ones are. In County Calvin, there's 10 people killed. So, you know, stacking up the body count isn't necessarily the only way to look at, to look at this period. Um, but that said, to answer your question, uh, we think now there's over 2,000 people killed in this period and overwhelmingly they're killed in South Munster, in Dublin City and in in Belfast.
1: Why was Cork, do you think, Uh, 500 dead in Cork, we have all the famous
3: ambushes, killed Michael, Cross, Barry, etc. Why was that county so hot? One reason is, a a very mundane reason, is Cork is, apart from Dublin, is the most populated county. You know, Dublin and Cork are the most populated counties and they have the most violence, and Belfast as well, Antrim. But there, there are other reasons. So, for example, counties like, say, Galway and Wexford, which had attempts at Easter Rising in 1916, their organisation of the volunteers and of the IRB was decimated after the rising, and that didn't really happen in Cork, not to the same degree, for example, even though people, some people are arrested. Um, there is a theory that the Cork leaders felt kind of humiliated by their failure to rise in 1916, and you know they have something to prove, that's one theory. But I think it, another thing to look at is the legacy of the 19th century. So if you look back to the early 19th century, in places like Cork and Kerry and Tipperary, you have agrarian secret societies doing what are effectively similar things to what the IRA did 1919 to 21. So they gather at nighttime, they attack the police, they attack informers, you know. There, there is probably a legacy in terms of secret societies moving from Captain Rock, to the Tithe War, to the Fenians, to the IRA. I think that the traditions in an area are probably important. And the final thing though is, local leadership in the IRA is very important. So for example, in County Longford, you have Sean McKeown, who is a very effective guerrilla leader. Uh, it stands out from all the other areas. And as far as I can see, it's mainly down to Sean McKeown and his competent leadership in that area. When he's arrested, it all disappears. So a lot depends on, on individuals as well. Okay.
2: Another theory, of course, is that Cork people are the most contrary and truculent.
1: Um... <laughs> well, well, that brings me, uh, <laughs> a segue into the next question very neatly, uh, and you've, uh, you and Will William Murphy have written a very good book on Michael Collins. Um, how important was he to uh, the eventual, I suppose you could call it, success of, of the IRA in the War of Independence?
0: I mean, I think he's, he's, obviously, I would say this, wouldn't I? I've just, as you said, he is very important to the War of Independence. Um, I think he's important, though, on several levels, and he's important on more levels than I think we usually imagine. I think we associate him very easily and very readily with the intelligence war. We associate him with very particular events. And yes, he is important in many of those contexts, but he's, he's also important on on some of the more, I suppose, less glamorous aspects of the War of Independence. In a sense, he's, he's very important because he's Minister for Finance which I think most people forget. And, and they always forget it when they say, well, why was why, did, why was Collins sent to go over and no, negotiate the treaty? Of course you'd send your minister of finance to negotiate the treaty like that. So, I mean, I think we underestimate the importance of the administrator, uh, and he's a phenomenal administrator. He's a, a sort of a, a slightly worrying appetite for administration and paperwork. Uh, and I think in many respects, that's how he fights his war of independence, and he does this on several different levels. Um, he's important also because he knows about and becomes deeply aware very quickly of how important his own image is in the War of Independence. And he talks readily and and openly as as the British papers become fascinated, the British popular press becomes absolutely fascinated with him and the idea of him, and build him up into this mystery figure, uh, which he often sort of mentions, you know, look what they've said about me today kind of thing. And he's conscious of how important that persona is and how much, if you like, attention that draws on him and by drawing that attention towards himself, draws it away from many of the people that John has just yeah. talked about. Yeah. So he's very deeply aware of of, of his own persona. And I think that's partly why he's important. So I think, in some ways, he's important for that and and becoming this type of figurehead. Which many of his colleagues, as time goes on, as the treaty debates show, resent him for this notoriety in a way. But I think one of the things he's he's and again he's very he's deeply conscious of this. He's part of a machine, but he's very he's very little without all the other cogs as well. And this becomes clear. After he dies, and Michael Hayes, I think, makes one of the uh, people involved in the the pro-Treaty side afterwards, makes that point that when Parnell died, you saw the split in the movement, or you split already. But it it takes so long to recover. When O'Connell dies, if you get you get the sort of the the loss of a movement, but he was Hayes was able to argue within ten days we were kind of we were all right, we were up and running, we can do without him. So, and I think in a way you could argue that's a testimony to how important he was, in that he was able to leave behind. Of course,
2: the myth is being fashioned at the time of the War of Independence. And even when it, just after it finished, it was Arthur Griffith who referred to him as the man who won the war. Um, And and, I mean, that myth was sustained, a myth in the sense that no one man uh, won the war. The War of Independence is not the vindication of an astute master plan, uh, which is conceived and executed from the centre. Mm. It's much more complex than that. Uh, Collins' influence didn't necessarily extend... Uh, as far as is believed. Um, And there were limits to what he could do. I mean, he was a brilliant administrator, I think it's fair to say. There's a lovely uh, line from De Valera uh, when he writes to to Collins, Collins was expressing great frustration with the incompetence of his peers. Uh, and, and De Valera says, God did not give everyone the ordered mind he gave you, Michael.
0: Um, and and it,
2: it's very true. He did have a very ordered mind, uh, mind and I suppose he picked up a lot of, yeah. of that experience in, in the post office yeah. in London, uh, ironically. Um, but, you know, there is almost that civil service uh, aspect to him. And, you know, we, we think of Collins in uniform, because we have a, a, an image of him, that, that probably most famous photograph of him, which is actually at the funeral of Arthur Griffith. Uh, but he spent more time behind the desk. Now that's not to say he wasn't effective and he wasn't ruthless. And I mean, you know, in terms of, of intelligence and what was achieved there, uh, it was very significant. Uh, but it's back to, I suppose, the way in which myths are fashioned and the reductionist approach to the War of Independence. To be able to say, you know, the man who won the war, An awful lot of the War of Independence is heavily localised. It's hugely dependent on local personalities, on local dynamics, and the the practical limitations. How many arms are available? I mean, you know, you you see estimates of of the amount of uh, rifles that were available to the IRA during the War of Independence. About 3,500, you know. So when you start breaking it down like that, you realise there were parts of the country that were very, very quiet and very frustrated uh, because they don't have the means or the ability. Uh, to do the fighting that they might might like to
1: do. Um, so uh, we just spoke about Michael Collins there, but you uh, have also examined the other end of the spectrum that in your film The Keepers of the Flame with Newell O'Connor, about the military service pensions collection. Little plug for the supplement that we did the Irish Times last week. It's some, there are copies of it available uh, around the building. Um, but what does, what does the military service...
2: ...truths, as people uh, felt them. Uh, but what you get is a very complex issue what is active service in the war of independence because this was the bar this was where the bar was set you had to prove active service what emerges in that file in that archive is the range of activities that people were claiming could be termed active service uh, so you get an awful lot of detail uh, about military operations you get an awful lot of insights in, into what women and common men were coping with um, Nora Martin was a very active a common man in Cork and she sends a, a very severe letter at one stage to the pensions board wishing that there was more of a female input into the decision-making about active service because there's not an appreciation that just because these women that she was referring to did not shoot guns did not mean they were not taking enormous risks and under enormous strain so you get that kind of texture And you get that kind of of nuance and that kind of frustration being expressed. You also get an awful lot of the mundane details um, of, you know, abortive um, ambushes, of people getting continually drenched and exposed to difficult conditions. Um, You get uh, a a lot of insight into how poorly equipped and armed uh, they were. You get a lot of uh, information on the infighting. Uh, on the dynamics uh, that were going on in various parts of the country. Um, and you, you get an awful lot of windows onto the social situation, again, depending on what part of the country they were in, because you know, the War of Independence was an era where there was still intense bitterness and struggle over land, over social justice, over the, the status uh, of, of, of people in, 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 in different uh, areas of society. So, uh, it really is um, an enormous uh, overview of a very layered War of Independence experience.
1: John, uh, Jim spoke there about the, the IRA having a sum total of 3,500 rifles, and yet mm. they were able to fight the British to a standstill. Talk us through that pivotal year in, in between 20 and 21 when the war is at its height and eventually leading up to the truce in July 1921?
3: Well, going back a little bit to my previous answer, it's a very localised story. So there's parts of Ireland where there aren't these great ambushes or where there aren't the barrack attacks and so on. But in the centres of the war, you know, in South Munster and in Dublin and so on, really what you see is a big escalation first at the start of 1920, when the, the IRA kind of systematically attacks all the small police barracks, police withdraw from the barracks, leaving most of the countryside in the hands of the Republicans, so I spoke about the dull courts but that's that happens because the police withdraw and they're replaced by their Irish Republican police so in the summer of 1920 if you like the British government has a counterstroke, which is you know there's a number of things they try political settlement which we'll talk about the Government of Ireland Act but they bring in the Defense of the Realm Act which is a kind of martial law and they bring in famously the black and tans and the auxiliaries so they start to take back control of these areas and they you know in many cases especially the auxiliaries try to terrify the civilian population but they also kill quite a lot of IRA Uh, people, IRA volunteers at the time. The IRA hits back in late 1920, it's a further escalation, and 1921, you know, it's quite severe violence. You have six months from January, or seven months from January to July, where there's about a thousand people killed. And as I said, this is very concentrated in particular places. So the violence becomes very intense in 1921, as well as the big ambushes that people remember, you know, the Hedford ambush, the Crossberry ambush, a lot of people are assassinated on both sides. So a lot of people, there's around 200 informers killed. Almost all of them were killed in 1921. Why? Because the consequences of information about the IRA getting to the British have become graver. They'll be killed. Um, the British forces, tend to, they start executions. They start official reprisals. Violence is ramping up. So despite you know, the, the set-piece ambushes actually decrease by the summer of 1921, but the, the killing actually increases. It's kind of a paradox but what you're seeing is if you just look at the violence and you forget about the politics for a second is it's a spiral of violence there's more people being killed and then suddenly apparently inexplicably to many fighters it stops dead in July 11th 1921 at the truce but the reason is politics.
1: Uh, Jeremy as I know that you've studied this issue a long time you believed that the war didn't need to go on until 1921 is that right? you believe that the British could have ended it sooner? They
2: could have ended it at the end of 1920, Um, if David Lloyd George, as British Prime Minister, had made different decisions. um, The Hawks had his ear at that time. He was also, of course, somebody who publicly insisted in November 1920 that they had murder by the throat, that they were winning. Um, You know, the private reality uh, was very, very different. Um, But, you know, the, the politics of that period, the dynamics that are going on, the pressures that are on um, the British government in relation to how to contain their Irish problem, they can't contain it. It's becoming an international uh, story, it's causing a lot of embarrassment, but they're not particularly focused on Ireland and we have to remember that, you know, they're concerned also with what's going on in India, what's going on in Egypt, you know. Um, And, you know, there are very strong personalities like Winston Churchill as well, who had their own take on the Irish question. What they couldn't build, I suppose, was an effective unified command in Ireland when it came to all the different elements of the uh, British war effort. But we do know that there were links established towards the end of 1920. There were channels opened up. Uh, C.J. Phillips in the Foreign Office, the British Foreign Office, uh, referred to the slender link that has been established, and he was talking about his dialogue with Arthur Griffith. Bloody Sunday then intervened, and those events of November 1920, uh, including the Kilmichael ambush, it was a horrible, horrible end uh, to 1920. So that did scupper uh, a lot. Um, You could, uh, and again, this depends on how you read different versions of the Irish Republican perspective uh, in 1920. It has been suggested Michael Collins was open uh, to the idea of some kind of a cessation. Uh, towards the end of 1920 you have to speculate to a degree uh, in relation to that Um, but you know when do they decide that it's in our interest now to bring this to some kind of a conclusion a lot of that has to do with getting the ulster issue out of the way first
1: and i suppose that brings me on to a question i'm going to ask three of you and i'll start with you jeremy Uh, would we be the independent state that we are today without the war of independence
2: um We probably would, but it would have taken much longer. Um, and if this is another way of asking, was the War of Independence necessary? I would say yes. Was it justified? I would say yes. Was it cruel and horrible in so many ways? Yes. But you've got to consider those 100 years ago who were being guided by the lights of their time. Uh, they were... Those who were involved in this were living under an empire that they didn't want to be living uh, under. Uh, They felt that their rights were being uh, trampled upon. Uh, They were remarkably focused. Uh, There was a lot of bravery. There was a lot of courage. There was a lot of nobility. But they also became ruthless uh, in many ways. Such was the nature of it. But if you consider what was achieved by the end of 1921 and the creation uh, of a free state, that would not have been achieved without violence, I don't believe.
1: Uh, same question to yourself, Anne. Uh, would we be an independent country without the War of Independence?
0: I think we probably would. I mean, again, you know, echoing what, what Dermot said, but I think I mean, we also have to think of it in terms of they didn't go into this thinking, knowing that it was going to turn out the way it did, in, in the way that you can, you can see expectations start to shift across those months and years the momentum of those events contribute to the way in which it plays out. So it's very easy for us to stand back and say, yes or no, they should or shouldn't have done these things. I mean, I'm always very struck by how quickly certain people started to question what had happened um, in the recent past. I mean, as early as 1924, you get P.S.O. Hegarty's book, The Victory of Sinn Féin. And very, he's he's framing it largely in the context of the Civil War and he's blaming the anti-Treatyites for an awful lot of it. But what he's ultimately talking about is was all was everything that happened from 1916 on? Was it actually justified? And he's largely coming out with the answer no. And in the, what he means as being unjustified is he talks about sort of we unleashed gunmen onto the world, and in a way we're now being paid back. He talks at one point about you know everything we visited upon the British is now being returned on us tenfold, and that's quite a thing to come out with as early as 1924. That that very clear and deep questioning. Of what had been done and, the, and and for him the rightness and the wrongness of what had been done again you see it in frank o'connor's like if you think of frank o'connor's story guest of the nation published in 1931 and he's asking these really hard questions about the, the you know what young men were asked to do to each other in the war of independence and that's an incredibly early point i think maybe for us thinking about it looking back how quickly there was this questioning and and this was uh, doubts about and, and and real concern as to whether the violence was justified or not um, and maybe whether their views on it, to some extent, I think, are much more interesting than whether we think it was justified or not, almost in a parlour game here 100 years later. John?
3: I'm very wary of the idea of if we, of us judging if it was justified or if it was right. I, I don't feel I have the authority to do that. I think what we can say is what was the effect of political violence. So if we look at the question of Irish independence at the time, so one mistake some people have made in kind of public commentary is saying, well, this was, the Treaty of oh, 1921 was the same as Home Rule in 1914, and it was not. So Home Rule is very limited self-government. It was something like Northern Ireland has today, but even less in many ways, because they would have had no control over the police. But you're talking about Home Rule has no control over taxation. It has no police. It has no army. And the Free State in 1922 has all these things. And whether it's morally correct or not, it was the political violence that moved to this stage. So I think that the violence did have an effect. It did win more Irish independence. If that was justified, I think it's up to everyone to decide. The other question is partition. Um, There is also an argument that, say, say had Home Rule been uh, accepted, had Sinn Féin never arisen as a force, um, that there wouldn't have been partition. And I think this is also mistaken, again, whether we like it or not. So it's Ulster Unionist resistance to Home Rule in 1914 that, first of all, gets Ulster uh, excluded from Home Rule. Uh, the Government of Ireland Bill, which institutes partition, is drafted in December 1919, when the War of Independence has only killed about a dozen people. You know, so I don't think partition had anything to do with the War of Independence. I think it was decided before. And I think, whether we like it or not, political violence did achieve Irish independence, or much greater Irish independence than was on offer before. I suppose a lot
2: of those versions as well, questioning the questioning versions, they're also coming from people who've been really traumatised by the Civil War. You know, and that does colour then how they, they look at recent uh, events. But what we have to factor in to the discussion as well is British imperialism and what that represented uh, and how supremacist it was and how violent it was um, and the question of how Britain responds to the mandate that Irish Republicans have um, by refusing to accept it. Um, you know, that has to be a part uh, of the discussion as well. And I take the point you make about, you know, historians sitting in judgment Um, Richard Evans was here uh, a few years ago and and he talked precisely about that, that we have to stop lecturing the people on the past and why they didn't do better, you know. Um, Or wishing a personality change on the people of 100 years ago. That's part of the problem I suppose of, uh, and John's right I think, that's part of the problem of of us transposing whatever values that we might have in the 21st century back 100 years. We have to try and see it uh, as they saw it in so far as we can. Um, And of course, you'll always be able to look at the culmination of this, the tragedy of the Civil War um, uh, and ask that question, you know, was it really worth it that we ended up uh, tearing uh, uh, each other apart? And even in relation to partition, you know, did this make partition more likely? Uh, Was this responsible for partition? Um, Well, you know, that debate about partition obviously predates the War of Independence. Uh, It was something that... Um, was being discussed in 1912 around the time of the Third Home Rule Bill uh, being introduced Um, and it's exactly 100 years ago of course where you have the the, the beginnings of uh, um, what becomes uh, the formulation of a plan uh, for for the partition we have today. Um, So it is in the midst of that uh, but I think some form of the partition of Ireland was inevitable
3: with or without the War of Independence. Just on, sorry Ronan, yeah, the, on the morality of political violence, uh, just to, to slightly contradict what I said before, um, I think the political violence did you know, achieve Irish independence effectively. Mm. That doesn't necessarily mean that I think it was morally right to do all the things that the IRA necessarily did. And I think we should be a- able to have that conversation now. So a lot of conversation today about the war of independence is, well, if you criticise something that the IRA did, it means you're against Irish independence, You know, you think it was wrong, but they didn't have the authority to do what they did. Everything they did was de facto right because, you know, the cause was just. I think that's, that's kind of morally false as well. But when I say we're not omniscient, we're not gods, we can't, we can't make the judgments for people 100 years ago, at the same time, we can look at events and we say, that's, I'm not sure about the morality of, of that action. You know, the killing in itself is, is very it's unpleasant. It's, it's, mm. it's regrettable. It's also about shifting the focus
2: uh, to civilians, which has been an interesting development in the writing of the history of this period. And the IRA killed, uh, the last count I saw was 196 civilians uh, during the War of Independence, which is a very significant amount. Uh, But also that line that Ernie O'Malley uses, how do civilians cope with the War of Independence? Obviously in different ways, but a lot of them end up closing their eyes and shutting their mouths because they feel they have to. You know, and and there is that experience and there is intimidation and and there is fear and there is terror.
0: But part part of it as well is that when you look at this in the context of contemporary conflicts in other places, this isn't as violent as some of those other places are. And in a way, that's an interesting question that we maybe don't ask often enough is why is it actually so much less violent than other places? How how come the violence is more (coughs) contained than it was in some of those other places? And I think you're right. I think certain acts of violence are intimidatory and therefore you don't need to to, to, to sort of perpetrate another act of violence. So I think that there's, there's, in some senses we need to sometimes stand back from this a little bit more and look at it in the context of other places as well. Uh,
1: I suppose Anne uh, before we, we'll go get on to the, the, the floor in a few minutes but I just wanted to ask you one question about violence. I mean you, one of your areas of expertise is the impact of violence had in these years right. You hear these discussions particularly uh, in the north that that People like Danny Morris and say, oh yeah, you know, they were the good IRA back in the 1920s they never killed anybody. And then you have, um, is there an element of hypocrisy, particularly in the South, that we're, we, we regard the old IRA as good and the modern contemporary one as bad?
0: I mean, I think in, in ways that sort of says a lot about more recent, how the South in some ways responded to the Troubles, I think that's one issue. I mean, Danny Morrison, I think he, he was part, certainly felt to be largely responsible for publishing a pamphlet called The Good Old IRA, mm. which kind of came out of, I think, a sense of frustration. I think he begins the pamphlet talking about, I think it may have been Michael Noonan, as I think was Minister for Justice at the time, giving a speech at Bale where he was saying how wonderful Michael Collins was and how great this period yeah. was. And then he's, he's sort of frustrated with this, as he sees it, um, inconsistency, if you like. And he, he then goes on to list all of these incidents where the old IRA, as he terms them, made mistakes, injured women and children, did as he thought these awful things. And in fact, he's trying to. His logic is: well, we're uh, the modern IRA are much more effective at this than they were, but yet you condemn us and you applaud them. I and mean, of course the
2: old IRA. Yeah, they were calling themselves the old IRA long before the troubles. Yes, 1923
3: actually. and
0: part of that is old IRA associations start forming yeah. in various different places. But I mean, I think in some ways it it. it It begs us, particularly now when you see, see, and again, Dermot speaking earlier about the military service pensions, some of the types of evidence in there about the the demand some of this violence took from some of the individuals who perpetrated it. This becomes a very, very difficult topic to actually uh, engage with in any form of straightforward black and white way. And yes, awful things were done and people were asked to do pretty awful things and, and they did them. And I think it it really does force us to open our eyes and and be less, maybe naive is maybe a harsh way of putting it, but being less naive about what war is in any period, never mind whether it's the good old IRA or whatever else it is. but We can be quite, and again maybe it's the the question of distance as well, we can easily romanticise this period. And and that I think is linked to the fact that it does become part of the foundation myth. And and again you have the, the, the kind of odd situation where governments in the south were always from the word go never mind waiting until you get to the troubles they're always in that position where they're worried about violence breaking out at any moment whether it's from the anti treatyites after the civil war is over whether it's from army mutineers in 1924 <coughs> whether it's fianna Fáil worrying about what the ira are going to get up to after 1932 and on and on and on so there's always this sense and they all claim ownership of the war of independence in 1916 and whatnot so there's this sort of nervousness about who gets to claim the good old IRA bit you can also through the, through the
2: pension problem. files you know when you focus on an individual mm. you can trace their life story yep. you know I was looking at George Lennon's file there last week George Lennon was a very young commander of a flying column in, in Waterford um, and he had a nervous breakdown at the beginning of the civil war um, and looking at all the changes of addresses he had over the course of his very long life he lived to the age of 90 mm. and he 13 or 14 different address addresses he's so restless but he never recovers. His 20, 21, 22 year old self uh, is traumatized. He never recovers uh, for the rest of his life. He's constantly restless and he is suffering from trauma and it is diagnosed as such. It's a different language uh, than we would use today. You know, post-traumatic stress disorder we would talk about today. Um, And there's a restlessness there. There's a failure to come to terms or a difficulty of coming to terms and that has huge implications for people's personal lives as well as, as how they look back on the period but he eventually ended up practicing zen buddhism <laughs> in new york mm-hmm. uh, in the 1980s yeah. and became um, uh, an advocate for pacifism
0: yeah.
2: and they're all
3: related
0: yeah. he's very yes. interesting memoir online as well as he just published this thing george online. lennon
3: yeah. Again, i mean anna's written about this and she can probably speak more eloquently but no one should think as well that the people who carried out the War of Independence were unaffected by it. Like for example, this Michael Collins squad. Um, Mick McDonald, the first leader of the squad, had to be sent away to America for psychiatric reasons. He had a breakdown. Liam Tobin, the head of the Intelligence Department, was, it was said that he, he was, had a face like a man who had seen the inside of hell. Um, in the Army Inquiry of 1924, they talked about the squad as being the people in the IRA who had something similar to shell shock. You know, nobody yeah. should think it was a clean war. That, that's it. And even
2: on the other side, when you look at the British experience in Ireland during the War of Independence, this is a very different kind of conflict and warfare to what they are used to or have experienced in the First World War. Um, you know, the, the guerrilla tactics, the attack and retreat, uh, they don't know... How to identify the enemy? Mm-hmm. That becomes a huge yeah. complication because a lot of their enemies are going around in civilian garb, um, and you know the, the, the nature of the warfare, the nature of the conflict. It's very, very different. But what they, both sides, have in common is their youth. Uh, this so is a very, you know, a, a, a very young
1: um, a, a population fighting this war on both sides. I suppose another thing we you, you, you do forget is we, we kind of dehumanised the black and tans and auxiliaries. But a lot of these, these were men who had seen the horrors of the trenches. In fact, most of them probably were. They'd served in the First World War, so they were traumatised people as well. They were
2: traumatised, but they were also encouraged to do what they wished. Or what they wished. And, you know, uh, one of the big problems with the British conduct of the war in Ireland is the lack of discipline, the lack of coordination. Uh, The lack of ability to decide who is in charge, you know, and that does lead to appalling uh, behaviour on the part of them. So, you know, yes, there are traumatised individuals, there are brutalised uh, individuals, but there are also those who are being facilitated uh, in in doing dreadful things by their military superiors.
0: But I think there's also a sense of frustration among some of them, if you look at some of their materials, say in the Imperial War Museum and, and various other places, Many of them are f- quite frustrated with the British Army or with the British government, not, not letting them loose, not letting mm. them finish it quickly. They're being kept here, they don't want to be here. And then equally you're, you're, you're getting a sense as well, not so much from the Black and Tans, you say, with the First World War experience, but there's a sense that all the time that many of the British soldiers, that the traditional British soldiers in the army, are being they're they're being turned over a lot. So they're they're here for a while, they're moved on, they're moved out to India. Many of them. In some cases, I think the Rawlinson out in India is complaining about the soldiers who have been sent from Ireland out to India to him because they're too, they're, they've only spent six months in Ireland, some of them, are they're only young recruits. These are people who haven't been in the First World War. And he's saying because of their, the way in which they've served in Ireland, they're kind of of no use to them out there because they don't have the proper discipline. They've been through this slightly peculiar situation here where they, they don't know whether they're army or police, they don't know whether they're soldiers anymore and their sense of discipline to some extent has broken it's not just the brutalization of the first world war you're, you're still getting new recruits coming here all the time they're on peace you know effectively while they're here they're never at war so they're 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 being trained here and moved on elsewhere so I don't I think we sometimes forget that as well
1: okay now uh we'll the uh conversation we've about 10 minutes for questions please keep it to questions now there's a gentleman over here he's I think is it, have you your hand up No. uh, Anybody? We have a gentleman over here. Please confine your uh, uh, just to questions rather than statements, please, because we've a lot to get through. Thanks. Chairman, I'll be as
4: brief as I can. I just want to comment. I congratulate you on the uh, publication on Tuesday, uh, which was very interesting. Just to preface my comments, I'm a native of Lee growing up in the 50s in the shadow of um, McEwan's dynasty and the battles that uh, he was involved in. But I have to say, I'm confused somewhat by the article that was published the other day in relation to um, the Longford section. It's, uh, it's very critical of McCone. I'm not here as an apologist for him, nor I'm not a member of Fine Gael. But <clears throat> I've read McCone's uh, testament to the military archives, and nowhere did he claim um, 15 casualties after the battle in 1920. Now it says here the committee claims there was 15, but he only states that in the morning after the battle, all that was on the streets was blood and whatever the auxiliaries had left behind. Um, it does go on to discredit him in relation to the pension claims, which I respect or I can't question. But bearing in mind that it was one of the principal areas of conflict uh, in the War of Independence, on, on a direct conflict with the Auxiliaries, that I think the article itself did not do them justice uh, or fairness, because it was that particular area, that Lockdown Valley, from Arva to Banalee to Brannard, was one of the most uh, highly conflict areas in the Midlands, and I just felt that uh, I felt that Michonne was done some injustice in that article.
1: Okay, well, I take Thank your you. point. Um... I, I don't want to get into a discussion of it. I'm happy to discuss it with you afterwards, but uh, I take your point. Um, is there anybody who has a, a question? Yeah.
4: Um, I, I'm from Balnac County Mayo, and we had a marvellous person called Stephen Donnelly. Balinac was
0: quite a, an active area, but the question I want to ask really is not about... Uh, did the, uh, the subsequent selection of the, the Garda Force, an unarmed Garda Force... Was that, did that add a big reason for, for having an no, no, no armed guard of the force
4: in view of what happened in the War of Independence?
3: Anyone want to take that, John? Yeah, that's, that's kind of a civil war question, that one. But the, what a lot of people don't know is actually, initially, the Civic Guard, as the Guardi were first called, were actually armed. And they were disarmed in 1922 because they, they mutinied and they were handing over arms to the anti-treatyites. But there's a realisation the, during the Civil War that if they're armed, they're going to be targeted, yes, like the RIC. So they don't want that. The guards are unarmed during the Civil War, um, and as a result, they're not targeted. And that, that's why the guards are not armed. It's, it's, it's to do with this idea of trying to keep them out of the Civil War so that they can administer the law kind of impartially afterwards. Even that they are associated with the state, but not, some, not as a group that fought the Civil War. So it, it is very strongly, yes, they don't want them to be like the RIC. It's
2: it's quite a courageous thing to do, obviously, uh, uh, at that stage, given the militarism uh, that's apparent during the era. Uh, But it's also part of that very interesting policing story. It's a crucial part of the War of Independence as well. I mean, the experiences of the Royal Irish Constabulary, who were not outsiders by any means, and in the region of 400 of them were killed during the War of Independence. But this question of, you know, whether you could have a new start for policing, that it wouldn't be military policing, that it would be civic policing, that's the point I think they're trying to make.
1: We have the, uh, the uh, centenary, of the foundation of the Garda of in 19 in 2022. Is this gentleman here, oh, sorry. Okay.
5: okay. Um, yeah, it's generally said that um, the victors write the history. So I think uh, is it, if it's John, because uh, I came in a little bit late, um, said it's about looking back at history and making judgments. Um, and it's really one of the reasons why we need to constantly engage with it and and interrogate it in a way because the nationalist sort of struggle is only one strand of that history. And recently people may have seen the documentary with Olivia Leary in relation to Daniel O'Connell and the potential you know, for that that has been neglected. Now I just the just the other aspect in relation to the violence. Um, my understanding is that also the historians are sorry, the nationalists uh, particularly in the in the throughout the 19th century um, really, uh, it, to a great extent, if not ignored the North, but it kind of ruled it out of in their thinking in terms of self-determination. And um, uh, and so it, again, going back to the violence that was used, I, I, it's very difficult to see how the people in the North, in, the, in from the sixties onwards, the late sixties onwards, don't have some justification because really the conditions, in a way, were greater than at the time in 1916, um, like with, with discrimination and so on and so forth. And just to finish on the danger in the present day uh, with, with what has gone on in relation to Brexit, again, we see uh, significant propaganda here in relation to it. And just you know, one example of that is a, a national funded organization, an arts organization, which programmed unfinished revolution, which is essentially a platform for Seru to. Um, put their unreconstructed Republican views across. And, you know, I don't think there's justification. And that's why it's very important to look at these and the relevance of violence, uh, both at that time and whether, in retrospect, you know, it was wise. It may have been justified, but it may not have been wise. And, you know, maybe Zen Buddhism has... We can learn a lot
1: from it. Have we got a question, then?
4: This is more a conjectural question, and it relates to... Lloyd George's threat, if that's what it was, that there would be immediate and terrible war Mm. if the treaty negotiations were not conducted satisfactorily. What exactly was meant by immediate and terrible war? It gives the impression that up to then, it was gentlemanly war (laughs) played by Marcus (laughs) of Queensbury rules. And and now we're going to have real war. So, I mean, clearly it had an impact. and one version is that it may have involved letting the north, the conflagration in the north, loose. The other one is that it may have meant aerial warfare Mm. and there are other kind of candidates, but I'd just be interested in what what you would make of that.
2: I don't think David Lloyd George had thought it that deeply. Uh, It was certainly a threat, but whether he had actually teased out uh, what it might involve uh, I'm not so sure. I mean, what, we, what he was engaging in there was a very effective strategy. Uh, and, and he enjoyed that drama. Uh, that's the kind of, of, of character he was. And it was very effective. What he may have been alluding to was what some of his military top brass had said to him in relation to solving uh, this Irish Republican threat. The only way to do it was through a policy of Cromwellian severity, um, which wasn't acceptable for political reasons, you know. uh, They felt, the military felt that, you know, they had to be reserved, um, whereas they felt the only way you could actually defeat the IRA thoroughly uh, was through a policy of Cromwellian severity. The problem with the policy of Cromwellian severity, of course, is that it belonged to the 17th century. uh, And this was uh, a David Lloyd George who prided himself on presiding over a liberal um, British entity um, and British empire Uh, however we might feel about that description. So I'm not sure that the the nuts and bolts of that had been worked out, but there was uh, that feeling uh, that there could be a much more severe blanket British military uh, um, response than had been the case up to that point.
0: I mean, there's a file in in queue, and it sort of suggests. and again, it's one of those ones that you you get in the open, and you think, what the hell do do you do with this? Because in a way, it was sort of requests, uh, you know, a request went out that what do we do if the truce breaks down? And again, you get a sense that you don't know whether they were ever going to carry it out or not. But there there was suggestions about maybe using aerial bombing, maybe, t- you know, sweeping in lots of men into big camps, hugely increasing the number of British soldiers here, quick, short, sharp, shock, and get the hell out of again as quickly as possible.
3: And lots of executions. And so lots, lots of thinking.
0: executions. So there, there were, there's this stuff there but you never quite know well is this a is this a plan they would have actually drawn on or is this something that you ask senior figures within your army what might we do if this breaks down and here's the sort of Worst, po- worst or best, depending on your point of view. Possible scenario.
3: And as as Jeremy said, Neville McCready, who drafted some mm. version of that plan, yeah. Commander in Chief said, "I really don't think we should do this. because yeah. it's, it's political yeah. suicide for us." Yeah. Yeah. Just one
1: other thing, I would say myself that I think you're. All, I think we often underestimate the fact that Britain was a country that had been bled dry mm. in the First World War. Three quarters of a million people, were, mm. men, were dead. Yep. I, th- I I get the impression that there the resolve to call on Thailand had been drained by all their experiences. Yeah. Um, but
2: you've got, got to... to appreciate, I suppose, the position as well of, of the Irish negotiators in facing that threat. They were under enormous mm. uh, pressure to make a decision. Um, and, you know, if they had gone the other way,
0: But it's back to your point about 3,000 guns. They also know what they've got left, what resources they've got left to face it. And now they're all out in the open and they've been out in the open for a few months. It's very hard to... How do you go back? How do you go back to that in in that particular context?
1: This gentleman here. Arising from the last uh, contribution, would the panel agree that it was British public opinion as opposed to military achievements
3: of the IRA that brought the truce and the end to the war? That's a very very good question. Who wants to take that one? Um, I'll start. So, I mean, yes, short answer. Um... Like, it, there's a mistaken legend that grows up, of, you know, in the following decades that the War of Independence is a military victory for the IRA, and that's not the case at all. But the War of Independence is, is a propaganda victory, right? You know, it's British rule in Ireland is shown to be tyrannical. It's shown to be the use of force. And this is, in, a, in one sense, the objective of, of the IRA, to, as they saw it, expose the real nature of British rule, but to provoke Britain into being a real tyranny in, in Ireland. And in a way, that's their achievement, that the Brit, the British are put in a position where they have to compromise in order to save their public image, in a way, in the international
0: community. I mean, I think, again, you have to think about American opinion, but also British governmental awareness of American opinion and consciousness of American opinion. Again, I can't remember, there's a letter in the, in the British Library of, again, somebody, I think it's Rawlinson, again, in India, and he's saying, when he hears news of the treaty's been signed, effectively he says, that cleans our slate with the world, and particularly the yeah. Americans, and that's how he puts it.
2: Because there, there had been a lot of embarrassment. Mm. There is a piece with Ireland Council that's operating in Britain, and the trade union movement becomes quite mm. vocal as well. Yep. But also important is the role of journalists. Mm. There were significant senior British journalists coming over to Ireland and reporting on what was going on. And they were determined that they would not be censored in the way that they had been during the First World War. So there are stories appearing in Britain in the British media that are hugely embarrassing for the British government. Arising out of that, there are questions being asked in Parliament. Uh, about whether the truth is being told and about whether Britain um, uh, has the control over the situation that the politicians um, are are insisting they have. So it's a combination of that. The American dimension uh, is important also. But public opinion, uh, you know, insofar as it can be uh, measured, you've also got to realise there are still large swathes uh, of, of Britain who have no interest whatsoever in what is going on in Ireland
1: now we have uh, time for two short questions, please. So, uh,
0: Excuse me, uh, I just wonder, does the panel have any theory as to how ordinary farmers, shopkeepers, teachers could turn into ruthless killers? Just So good
1: question as overnight. well. Yeah. Um, yes, I'm not suggesting for one moment that we should complete the War of Independence. Could,
4: could I just ask
1: quickly each member of the panel do you expect to see and would you like to see a United Ireland in your own lifetime? OK, so the first question was, um, yeah, how did the farm boys and the, and the, the shop labourers and everything like that turn into cold killers? How did that happen? Well,
2: if you look at the nominal roles for IRA membership and for Common among membership during this period, uh, you 'll come up with a figure of about one hundred and fifteen thousand members of the IRA and over twenty thousand members of common man. Only a small small fraction of those were actually involved uh, so it 's not about you know uh, th- th- this um, blood. Uh, lust that sweeps over the country, it's not about there being huge numbers of people uh, involved in active combat, it's a relatively small number. Um, What propelled them to do what they did? Uh, It's a variety of different factors. Um, A lot of them, when they give their reflections at a later stage, refer to being caught up in a wave. Uh, They're young, they're idealistic, they're influenced by their peers, Uh, they feel uh, a great injustice. And they feel that you know their their rights are not being recognised, uh, and they are convinced, as a due to a variety of different uh, cultural and political and social uh, factors, um, uh, that this is something that they must do. Uh, so psychologically, you know, that's difficult to decipher. There's a lot of different elements that, that go into it. And again, going back to being you know guided by the lights of their time. Then, um, in relation to the question of unity, uh, the great tragedy that comes out of this period of Irish history is the partition of Ireland. And that's not a political point. You know, the, 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 the division of, of such a small island and what it meant long-term, we're still talking about it today. It's still proving to be a hugely uh, complicated and difficult issue today. That is a great tragedy. Um, and it would yes, be very nice uh, to see uh, a resolution to that. But it has to be a resolution uh, that everybody can live with.
0: I mean, I think the question about ordinary people, I mean, that's true of, you know, studies of all sorts of different wars. I mean, you know, there's a a book called Ordinary Men about men who ended up fighting in the Second World War in Germany. And and these are people who leave desks behind in classrooms and go and fight in the the Second World War. And and in ways, I think if you you even think of Saving Private Ryan, the the whole thing at the end of what is Tom Hanks's character at home in real life? And it's this sense of, you know, people join organisations and, and the momentum of events takes them into situations that they never intended necessarily to be in. And I think that's true of people in in any kind of warfare, never mind, or anything that, that's maybe particular to the to the War of Independence. I mean, it, it might, what might happen in my lifetime, I mean, what has already happened in my lifetime would have been, in some ways, if someone had asked when I was 10, 12, 13, <laughs> could I have, have imagined the peace process I possibly couldn't have? So all sorts of things have happened in my lifetime already. I've no sense of what's going to happen. Nor, like, I'm, I'm, there's a reason I'm a historian. <laughs> yeah. I think Dave, Fitz, Dave Fitzpatrick put it really well. He says we're always too late. Um, and I think, in a, in a way, it, it's 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 this sort of. And I keep thinking back to something W.C. Cosgrave said, in something about 1931. I think he was asked of some sort of rumours there going to be Irish unity, and he says, uh, "You know, I I, would, I don't want to comment on that, but." Says if it does happen, it'll happen for reasons maybe we, we we don't suspect. And in some ways, Brexit has maybe upset the very thing that he predicted, which was that you know it would be about a, a working towards a common economy and just that freedom of movement uh, north and south. Not really, in some sense, it's not saying it explicitly, but just in some sense, it's just living side by side and cheek by jowl with each other in in very straightforward ways. And, and as I said, I don't, I don't want to predict the future. I'm, as I said, I'm too late. <laughs>
3: John? Um, On the first question, the question of of killing, um, the first, many, many IRA volunteers, even active ones, never killed anyone. So they did things like they blocked the roads, they seized the mail. You know, they they intimidated people much more often than they killed them. But some people did kill, quite a lot of people. Um, Was it because they were especially vicious? For the most part, no. I, I would say it's because of the nature of conflict. So killing at first is very difficult. And a lot of IRA veterans spoke about this. They didn't want to kill at first. They were hesitant to kill. Um, once they get involved in the conflict situation, though, where your friends have been killed, in, in some cases, picked up and tortured and then killed, killing them becomes easier. So it, I would say the conflict has a momentum of its own. And, and it's also the reason why in post-revolutionary Ireland, post-Civil War Ireland, we don't see all these people going out and continuing to be criminals. You know, it's, the, it's the dynamics of conflict, it's the context that enab- enables people to kill. Um, second question about unity, um, I don't know. But one thing that I would like to mention is I was at a very interesting talk in Trinity College a few weeks ago where they had senior Irish civil servants, including a man who helped negotiate the Good Friday Agreement, and one of the things that emerged was there has been no planning at governmental level in in, in Ireland for unity. And if there is to be unity, that has to change.
1: Okay, on that note, well, listen, thank you so much. Uh, You're a very uh, knowledgeable and involved audience.
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Dublin Festival of History, brought to you by Dublin City Council. You can find out more about the festival on DublinFestivalOfHistory.ie and by following us on Twitter where we're at HistFest.